everyone. Welcome to Around the World in 80s Movies. My name is Vince Leo. I'm the author of the film review website, Quipster.net. I invite you to check out over 4,000 of my written reviews. You can read there anytime. Quipster.net is where to go. Q-W-I-P-S-T-E-R.net. Also, I want to remind you that I do another podcast that covers brand new movies out in the theaters. Similar to this one, maybe a little bit less trivia in history because these are brand new movies, but still in the same review format nonetheless. Just search for the Quipster Film Review Podcast wherever you're listening to this right now and you'll find it. Today we're going to get into another three-part series. We just covered breakdancing films of the 1980s. We're going to take a pretty big shift here into films, a trio of films in which the protagonists have to save a home for someone. We just had a community center being saved in Breaking 2 Electric Boogaloo. The first film of this three-part series is going to be about saving an orphanage. And if you, you're probably way ahead of me if you haven't already seen the title of the show. The Blues Brothers from 1980 is the film I'm going to be reviewing today. It's an R-rated film. It does have quite a bit of language, a little bit of violence. The runtime Well, if you go by the theatrical release, it's 2 hours and 13 minutes. If you go by the extended version that a lot of people watch today, it is 2 hours and 28 minutes. So adding a little bit of time there for a film that some people think is quite long already. Of course, The Blues Brothers features John Belushi and Dan Aykroyd as The Blues Brothers. Carrie Fisher, Henry Gibson, Cab Calloway, John Candy, Charles Napier, Jeff Morris, Aretha Franklin, Ray Charles, James Brown, Kathleen Freeman. Oh gosh, you can go on and on with this film. I mean, cameo appearances galore. It's directed by John Landis and the screenplay credited to Landis and Dan Aykroyd. Now, I will say this right up front. The Blues Brothers ranks among my favorite films of all time. Not the best, I would say. I don't think this is the best movie of all time or one of the best, but it's just a favorite of mine. This has inspiration. It never remotely comes close to ceasing. John Landis, wildly over-budget film, is more like an experience than it is a conventional movie. And that's the only way I can describe it to people who don't quite get it or maybe haven't seen it or are seeing it for the first time. It really is a pigeonhole-defying mix of a loving homage to rhythm and blues, a lot of scattershot comedy here. It really is an on-the-spot musical, and it contains the most outrageous car chase scenes really ever put to celluloid. All in all, I'd say it's a -a laugh-a-minute destruction derby that defiantly refuses to conform to standard rules of movie-making. It frequently transcends this simple story of a band reuniting with a lot of religious overtones, mixed with wanton destruction, and then ends up creating one of the finest soundtracks to a movie ever. Now, you could note that the excess the film would embrace started with Dan Aykroyd's original script. His first attempt at writing a script, it ended up being three times longer than a usual script, over 320 pages. And that's for a film that contains a lot of musical interludes, mind you. So Landis here, when he received that script... He got a co-writing credit for having to pare down that script into something that was usable and shaped into a standard narrative format because Aykroyd didn't even include a beginning, middle, and end to his plot. Now, the film, as released, starts off with Jake Blues, played by John Belushi. He's just getting released from prison at the beginning of the film. He ends up picked up by his brother, Elwood, played by Dan Aykroyd, in a used cop car that they've deemed the new Bluesmobile. 
They end up making good on a promise to visit the orphanage that they both grew up in, only to find that that orphanage is in danger of being shut down. They need $5,000 in tax money that they owe. And with only days to go before it's too late, the Blues Brothers end up being inspired by this vision from God to save this orphanage, which they plan to do by reuniting the band that they originally played with. And that proves to be a tough task, though, because all of the members have moved on to other occupations since Jake went to jail. And not only this, but along the way, they manage to really piss off everyone. They piss off the police, the Illinois Nazi party, and really everyone else that they come across in their bid to make enough money to deliver by the deadline without getting caught, or maybe worse. It really is a simple premise, but there's a lot to this movie that you'll remember once you come out of it. It really exudes the perfect amount of comic cool. Belushi and Ackroyd here, they strut their stuff with confidence. They give oodles of personality to their original sketch comedy characters that they created during their stint on Saturday Night Live during the 1970s. The film kind of adheres to its own sense of logic, if you can claim it has logic at all. There are certain constraints, though, so I guess there is a logic. It starts with the look of the Blues Brothers, who are shown as nearly always wearing their trademark Ray-Ban Wayfarer glasses and their fedora hats, in addition to their all-black suits and ties. The Blues Brothers are quite a talented cover band in their own right. They demonstrate their love for the music and the attitude of rhythm and blues and blues and soul, and also the artists that are responsible for the continued popularity of those genres. There are strong cameo appearances. Those are a major strength of the Blues Brothers, with some fantastic musical numbers. James Brown here performing gospel, Aretha Franklin in a very key scene, Ray Charles, John Lee Hooker, Cab Calloway, and of course, the Blues Brothers themselves are quite arresting to behold. In addition to the musicians, are many well-known actors, directors, personalities throughout this film, including Carrie Fisher, who was engaged to Dan Aykroyd at the time, and coincidentally was the host of the original Saturday Night Live episode in which the Blues Brothers made their debut on television. Belushi and Aykroyd not only deliver here on their comedic end, but they also do quite a number as performers. They work on some very acrobatic dance moves on stage, completely enthralling and entertaining as part of their act. Before the Blues Brothers existed, Aykroyd and Belushi were just in love with the Blues, and they ended up having a connection because they both shared that love, so much so that they ended up creating these alter egos to exemplify that love by delivering on music that inspired them to sing and play along on their own for so long. They originally started the Blues Brothers as a warm-up back to get the crowd motivated before episodes of Saturday Night Live. They eventually cajoled Saturday Night Live producer Lauren Michaels into letting them do it live on the air, even though it wasn't meant strictly as a sketch to induce laughs. They really were trying to perform. You quickly get the feeling when you watch them, though, it's not all for show or for money. They actually do love the music that they perform and are so into it that you can't help but be moved to celebrate it along with them when they put their full bodies and movements on the line. Ackroyd and Belushi were hooked, and they felt they had gotten so adept that they sought out and obtained a recording contract with Atlantic Records, eventually becoming an opening act for comedian and well-known SNL guest Steve Martin. They just needed to put together a band, which they did with the one that you would see eventually also appearing with them in the movie. Unfortunately, the grind of the second career of sorts for them involved making the movie, doing shows. It proved to be too much for them. In 1979, Ackroyd and Belushi announced they would not be returning for another season of Saturday Night Live, and that's something that they were really concerned with because their popularity may wane, especially with 1941, which is another John Belushi film, did not do so well at the box office. The comedy here in this film 
is so off the wall. I think if you get hooked in early, you really can't help but laugh along with its absurdity as it goes all out in trying to entertain and enthrall. The Blues Brothers here go on their comic odyssey in deadpan fashion, almost literally leaving behind every stop destroyed, and yet they seem almost oblivious to it all. And just when you think that the madcap nature of the Blues Brothers couldn't get any more silly, John Landis ends the film with almost a half hour of the most expensive and elaborate and destructive chase sequences ever put on film. It's very impressive to behold in this era where such things could be rendered largely with CG and heavy editing. Cars are speeding down the streets of Chicago and they get dropped from tall heights and crash in and out of buildings and they pile up on top of each other dozens of times on the streets. They ended up purchasing over a dozen bluesmobiles and over 60 old cop cars to have at their disposal. And that led to its inclusion in the Guinness Book of World Records for the most vehicles destroyed in a movie that was eventually bested by its sequel, The Blues Brothers 2000, before the record would be shattered by a variety of 21st century action blockbusters that had a lot more budget than this film. Now, there is a prolonged scene in this film, very famously, in which the Bluesmobile and a variety of cops that are in pursuit smash through a shopping mall that was actually shot in a real mall, although it had been closed down at the time of filming because of gang activity in the area. It was scheduled for demolition, but that demolition ended up not really occurring until actually just a few years ago. Real stunt people and extra were placed in the renovated-for-one-use mall scene by John Landis so that viewers would see that all of the action in the film was shot in real time and with real vehicles and doing real destruction. It was not sped up for effects or done with miniatures or any kind of other movie magic. And that scene would become famously the most expensive car chase sequence on film at that time. The success of the Blues Brothers act before and after the film produced three successful albums, some of the best in blues, soul, and rock and roll songs on there. Sadly, John Belushi's death in 1982 would put an end to the act, an act that saw Belushi have more access as well as more need for the drugs that would end up having to keep him going, or so he felt. The Blues Brothers since, I guess they really didn't end completely, although as Accurate will occasionally put a makeshift act together that features John's brother, Jim Belushi, or John Goodman to the mix. Their collaboration ended up resulting in that Blues Brothers 2000, a completely needless, unfunny sequel that came out in 1998 that was also directed by John Landis, who did not want to make the film, but ended up doing it anyway, and could not get lightning here to strike twice. I mean, when you have a film so slapdash, but it ends up working for a lot of people anyway, because of that nature of it, it's really hard to recreate that magic. And although uh, the original Blues Brothers from 1980 was definitely a financial gamble, it would ultimately prove to be lucrative, it cracked a top 10 in the U.S. box office for films that were released in 1980s. It was number 10. It racked up about $115 million worldwide off of a budget that ballooned to nearly $30 million. So they ended up recouping quite a bit of money here with about half of the overall take. Interestingly enough, it came from overseas sources. It made more money overseas than it did in the United States. It was especially popular and continues to be in Australia. And that international success, to me, it's kind of surprising when you consider that the film has a lot of humor and a lot of references and acts within the film that are distinctly American in appeal. Maybe that is why it appeals to other people around the world as this kind of slice of Americana, especially in its music. When it was released in the United States, the screens were much more limited for a movie with this high of a budget because some movie chains refused to show the film because it was kind of long 
and it got some scathingly bad reviews that they didn't really want to take a chance. And there were a few, according to Ackroyd, a few Southern theater owners that disregarded it as a so-called black film, not really of demographic appeal to those they considered to be their traditional audience, so they didn't want to show the movie. And beyond that, it ended up being released the same week, unfortunately for them, to a certain extent, as The Empire Strikes Back. Maybe it was fortunate. Maybe they got some of the spillover audience that didn't get to see Empire Strikes Back because they were sold out. And for the entire run of the Blues Brothers, Empire Strikes Back was the top box office earner for all of that. And yet it made quite a bit of money back. Coincidentally, both films released the same week in the same year. Both films also feature Carrie Fisher and Frank Oz, who also appears in the opening sequence in a rare acting performance in his human form as the prison clerk who discharges Jake Blues from the joint. So those films kind of tied together there. The Blues Brothers, I would say it's far from a perfect comedy. I would not expect perfection from this film. And obviously the reputation of this movie, if you haven't seen it already, a lot of people hype this as a great movie. If you're going into the film with that mindset, you're already going into it with the wrong mindset. You just have to go into the movie without any preconceived notions that it's going to be a great movie. Just watch it, enjoy it, go along for the ride, and I think that you will probably be vastly more entertained than you continuing to engage with the movie saying, show me why this is great. Because it's not that movie. It wasn't intended to be a great movie. It was just intended to be a very entertaining movie. And it is. It can be uneven in spots. But I think that those momentary lapses are very difficult to remember when it's all over. I mean, by the time the credits roll, you'll most likely have added so many fond memories to add to your favorite movie-watching experience. It's easily one of the most entertaining films of the 1980s. The Blues Brothers is time capsule-worthy in its collection of music, not only in irreverent comedy, but its reverence for that music, some of the best music of the 1960s and 70s. It really is a beautiful thing to behold. I'm giving The Blues Brothers from 1980 four stars. Four stars on my scale obviously means it's something that I would recommend to anybody. It's an R-rated film, but I let not only my wife, who saw it for the first time, but my daughter, Lily, who is just on the verge of turning seven, watch it. You know, She can deal with the bad language. It's completely fine as far as I was concerned. I watched this when I was a kid. I was nine years old when this came out, and I It was one of the rare movie-going experiences with my parents at the time who took me along, and I really loved it back then, and I continue to love it to this day. It's a movie I can watch endlessly, even with that length. So four stars out of four for The Blues Brothers. Thanks, everyone, for listening. I will continue on with films in which somebody has to save their home or a home for someone with another movie that came out. Steven Spielberg, who makes a cameo appearance in The Blues Brothers, was the producer of the film I'm going to be talking about. It came out in 1987, a little sci-fi comedy drama called Batteries Not Included with Hume Cronin, Jessica Tandy. Can't wait to talk about that. That'll be on the next week's episode. I haven't seen that for a while, so it'll be interesting to revisit that film. Batteries Not Included for those people who are trying to keep up with the films as I get to them. So... Don't forget, go to my website for all my contact information. That's at quipster.net, Q-W-I-P-S-T-E-R.net. And thank you so much for joining me on this trip around the world in 80s movies. Go, go, go.